Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to episode 31 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, an episode we're titling Acquisitions, Sourcing, Valuing, and Funding. We get questions around all of this because the vast majority of the people in our audience are interested in building a group through acquisition. So I'm gonna unpack all three components of acquisitions today, sourcing, valuing, and funding. It'll all be on today's show. You're gonna wanna take some notes, so grab a pad and pen, and I hope you come highly caffeinated. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, thanks everybody for joining me on the podcast today. As I mentioned and teased in the opener, we do see that probably I'd say between 80 and 90% of the groups we work with are growing through acquisition. Um, very few do de novo. We're going to have an upcoming episode on de novos, and the Walker and I candidly love the de novo strategy if, if executed properly. But understandably, the vast majority of the people are growing through acquisitions. So if you're going to buy businesses to build your group, there are a handful of components that you really need to think through. And frankly, you need to get them right to be successful in this strategy. One of those components is sourcing. Another is valuing or valuation. And the third is funding. We'll talk integration and, and things in, a, in an upcoming episode. But for today's episode, sourcing, valuing, and funding are the three key components that we want to unpack on the lead up to acquiring a practice. Now, as I mentioned, I'd say between 80 and 90% of the groups are, are growing through acquisitions. And that means when a practice comes on the market for sale, it's a pretty competitive process. We hear from a lot of people in a lot of different areas that, hey, Karen, how do I find practices to buy? They just don't come uh, on the market that often. I feel like I hear about practices being acquired, and I never even knew they were for sale. That's a common frustration from a lot of you out there in the audience. And I would say the root cause of that is that you have too limited a focus on where you're getting your information. And specifically, you're probably waiting for a practice to come on the market that's listed by a broker. So let's take a second and, and touch on this. If the practice is listed for sale by a broker, a broker has been contacted by every local entrepreneurial dentist trying to build a group. They've been contacted by a lot of young associates or people coming out of dental school or residency, even from outside of the state that you're in, they, the broker's been contacted by every person on the business development team, 
from every enterprise level DSO. And the broker may have been contacted by pure play private equity groups as well. The broker's phone is blowing up. Everybody wants to find a business to buy. And what does the broker want to do? Well, the broker understandably wants to get paid. So how do they get paid? They get paid by getting a deal done and at the highest price. So when a broker lists a practice for sale, he or she wants a competitive process. They want a lot of people involved. They want the price of the practice to be bid up, honestly, and they want the highest degree of success possible so that they get paid for the work that they've done. That doesn't sound like the greatest gig in the world for you, if I'm being honest with you. And if you are relying on brokers to bring you practices that are listed for sale, chances are that broker is going to bring those practices to a lot of other people in your same boat, and you're probably going to get outbid. That's not the type of competitive process that I would want to be in. And when we work with clients in our consulting program, and they are growing their business through acquisition, one of the first things we have to do is sit down and say, okay, you're going to grow, grow through acquisitions. Where are you finding practices to buy? And if the answer is, I'm relying on uh, XYZ broker and ABC broker and DEF broker, then that's not um, a reliable strategy um, because of the competitive nature of those types of processes. So let's, let's think for a second here about practices to buy. If a practice comes on the market for sale, the seller has already made the decision that he or she wants to sell that practice. They've probably also mentally made the decision that they're ready to retire or transition out. So you need to think about your strategy in terms of acquiring practices and whether or not you want the seller to remain on board. If your strategy is to buy practices and transition the seller out imminently because you have a pipeline of associates to backfill behind them, that's great. That's a, a wonderful strategy. However, if you're having trouble sourcing associates, then you probably don't want the seller to transition out or retire, in which case a practice that comes on the market for sale with a seller that's already mentally checked out might not even be in your best interest. So you need to think about what you want to do with the seller. Do you want them to stay on board or do you want to replace them? Because those are two totally different endeavors and the stress and the risk on you is significantly different. My advice to you is that you probably want the seller to stay on board for some period of time longer than three to six months, maybe a year, maybe two, maybe indefinitely. And if that's the case, then you're probably not going to find a practice with a seller of that mindset listed by a broker. So where do you find them? This is where um, you need to be the head of your own business development team. We've talked about the concept of being the business development office in previous podcast episodes, and we're going to talk about it a lot more in the coming episodes. But suffice to say, there are other resources that you need to uncover um, when it comes to building your own pipeline of practices to potentially acquire. Could be local dental society meetings, if you're uh, a member of the state dental society or, or local chapters or precincts of it. 
um, or some type of a study club if it's subject matter oriented. Could be a dental school alumni network. Um, certainly practice brokers are, are a component of all of this, but if they're your number one resource, um, I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's reliable, I'll say. Um, and you want to think twice about that. So what, what is the network that you have with existing dentists and dental practices in and around your geography? And how well are you tapped into those networks? Who do you know? Um, you want to be uh, courting people to potentially acquire their practice years in advance before they arrive at that conclusion. Uh, and that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of, you know, planting seeds and, and watering the seeds and allowing the crops to, to grow before you harvest them. And, and it is a very um, diplomatic uh, process that involves a lot of patience, I'll say. You are a licensed dentist and chances are they'll pick up the phone and talk, you know, another dentist will talk with you colleague to colleague a lot more easily than they might a broker or another third party. Um, so I would, I would encourage you to start that process, um, use your connections, use your contacts and see um, uh, the other practice owners who you can network with and how you can get to know them and find out what their future desires are. The other component to um, uh, resources, if you will, are, are groups like dental supplier reps or manufacturer reps or attorneys, accountants, you know, bankers, trusted third parties, uh, and even industry consultants. These are all people who network and know people in your same space, and they may know them better than you. Um, they probably would know them better than you. They may have a longer standing relationship with them. They may have more trust built up with those uh, business owners. Uh, and they may know when somebody is considering um, transitioning out in the coming years. So it's important for you to network with your uh, dentist colleagues in your area, but it's also important for you to be able to build a network of what I would call trusted third-party advisors. And this is really de business development in its truest, most holistic sense. And I hate to put this uh, uh, word in front of you, but it's kind of like being a sales rep. And what I mean by that is anybody who's ever been in sales before understands the concept of building a pipeline and pipeline development. Because when you're a salesperson, not every prospect buys from you and not every prospect buys at the same time from you. It's important to understand when a prospect is, is ready to buy whatever it is that you're selling. And, they, and prospects reach that point in time differently based on a lot of different scenarios. If you are going to be the head of business development for your growing group, and you want to source acquisitions, not every candidate is going to be mind ready at the same point in time and willing to say yes to your offer. So you have to have a long list of people who some of them may never arrive at, at that point in time where they're ready to sell to you. Others, they may be ready in the coming 12 months. Some it may take three to five years. Some it may take five to 10 years. 
but it's important to be in the game long enough to understand that it is a long-term proposition that you're trying to cultivate here. And that's a completely different mindset than just banging the phone of a bunch of dental practice brokers in hopes that you can find somebody who's, who's ready, willing, and able to sell to you. So the first component of growing through acquisitions uh, is, is sourcing. The second piece is valuing and valuation. If you do come across a practice for sale listed by a broker, it's probably going to be listed as a percentage of collections um, or a percentage of revenue. And usually that number is somewhere between 60 and 80% of collections or 60 and 80% of revenue. Could be less in some scenarios, could be more in some scenarios. Uh, and and the, the mindset of, of a business owner, a practice owner that's getting ready to exit is valuing his or her business as a percentage of collections. The reason that businesses are, that practices are listed as a percentage of collections is that most of the time, historically speaking, most of the time a practice will be acquired by a, a young associate or um, somebody coming out of dental school or residency uh, buying his or her first practice. And the, that person, that young buyer, is going to go to a bank and borrow money to buy the practice listed for sale. A bank typically reaches their maximum comfort level somewhere around 80 to 85% loan to revenue. Okay, so this is a little bit of something called a glass ceiling effect. If a bank is only going to loan a borrower, 80 to 85% in the total amount of a loan, 80 to 85% um, of the, the practice's revenues, then where is a broker going to list the practice for sale in terms of valuation? Well, a broker very rarely is going to value it more highly than what a bank-funded borrower can afford to pay because the broker wants to close the deal and get paid himself or herself. So if a bank is willing to loan up to 80 to 85% of the revenue line, then a broker is probably going to list the practice for sale at a maximum of 80% of collections. They want to ensure that the transaction funds. They want to ensure that the transaction closes. And for them to get paid, that means the bank's got to be willing to fund it, and it's got to be at a valuation metric that, uh, that supports all of that. So this 80 to you know 60 to 80% of collections number is something that you see all too often. And it's not a hard and fast number, but it is a number that's all too often dependent upon the bank's willingness to fund it. The reason that a bank is willing to fund that level in terms of percentage of collections or percentage of revenue is because they, the bank wants to be confident that the young associate borrower can support the practice from a revenue generation standpoint, meaning they can support it clinically speaking, and the amount of cash flow that the business throws off supports the borrower's lifestyle and the debt service of the practice. And at 80% of collections, it probably checks both of those boxes. Why is that important for you? Because if you 
see a practice listed for sale as 80% of collections, that probably means that the business itself will support that associate working in the practice and the debt service required to buy it. However, when it comes to those valuation metrics, that's not the same thing as an EBITDA multiple. You've heard us talk about how to think through percentage of revenue versus multiple of EBITDA, and they are significantly different metrics. For you, you're going to buy that practice, but you are not going to be the primary economic engine in that practice. Quite the contrary. You're going to buy the practice and you're going to hire an associate to work in that practice for you, to do the clinical work for you. And you're going to pay them a clinical compensation rate. After you've paid them and you've paid all the overhead, basically the remaining um, leftover cash is a close approximation of EBITDA. Okay. So now we're talking about EBITDA multiple after having paid an associate to do the clinical work required. And then beyond EBITDA is debt service. And when you subtract debt service from EBITDA, you get to a more uh, closer approximation of free cash flow. The reason that this is important for you to understand valuation methodologies is because if you're building a group, the group is going to be valued as a multiple of EBITDA. And it's important to understand multiple of EBITDA for two reasons. One, if you decide to sell the group, it's going to value as a multiple of EBITDA, and that's the way the transaction is going to be valued. Or if you want to continue growing your group, a bank is going to continue to lend you money as a leverage ratio against EBITDA. So if you want to continue growing the group, uh, your primary lender is going to make one of the decisions they're going to make is in terms of whether they continue to fund your growth strategy is a multiple of EBITDA, funded debt to EBITDA specifically. Or if you want to exit the group, it's going to be a valuation metric that's a, va that's a, a multiple of EBITDA upon exit. If you're only buying businesses as a percentage of revenue or percentage of collections, and you can't understand the relationship from a multiple of EBITDA standpoint, you will get upside down very quickly with your bank, and they'll probably cut you off in terms of funding. Or if you choose to go to market, the business probably won't value nearly as highly as what you anticipated, and you could end up with a less than stellar transaction. So if you're going to buy businesses and they're listed as a percentage of collections, you have to understand how that translates into EBITDA and EBITDA margin and multiple of EBITDA. So valuation is of, of primary importance when you're sizing up whether or not to pull the trigger on this practice you're about to buy. Hopefully that, that adds a little bit of context for you. Um, as it relates to uh, not only sourcing, but valuing. And the third piece is obviously funding. So I mentioned bank funding a second ago, um, and all of our clients are what we call doctor-founded and debt-funded. So they're all using bank funds to grow. And, and you do need to understand how the bank makes lending decisions and how, how far they're going to fund your growth strategy. 
But the other piece to funding is a question that we get frequently, which is, okay, I'm borrowing a lot of money to build this group. Should I put any money down when I buy a, uh, a practice? Our general response to that is you should use bank funding to the, to the greatest degree possible because debt funds right now are still really, frankly, pretty cheap. Um, and the cost of equity is, is greater than the cost of debt. So when and where possible, preserve your cash. Um, borrow the, the maximum amount that you can from the bank that the business will support um, because those funds are still, I would say, plentiful or available. Uh, and there's, the, the cost of them is still very, very low. That being said, there may be an occasion where you want to put some money in if the bank comes up short on the amount they're willing to loan you. So you need to have a, a war chest of cash, a, a, a lot of cash on balance sheet that would allow you to complete an acquisition if the bank does uh, come up short on the, the total value of the business you're trying to buy. Uh, so it's important to have cash available to do that and to use it um, sparingly, but borrow money when and where you can. The other piece to funding is a, a, a different component, which is an equity role. Now, if a business generates a million dollars in revenue, and if it's valued at 800,000, which might be 80% of collections or you know, five times EBITDA or something like that, you know, the bank may only have available uh, funds up to 600,000, meaning like you come up a little bit short on the amount that you've agreed to acquire the practice. Occasionally, um, and if you've thought this through ahead of time, the, it may merit the seller rolling equity into your business if that seller wants to stay on board for a long time or wants to have a second bite of the apple. So an equity role component in terms of practice acquisitions lowers the amount of funding you have to have uh, it does bring in minority partners, and it does lower or dilute your overall position in terms of ownership in the business, but it can be a very legitimate strategy to growing the business more quickly. The same thing could be said for affiliations. Affiliations, the way we have positioned them, are a no-debt growth strategy. So it doesn't require bank funding at all in that context but you only generate any equity if you're able to help um, the affiliate uh, improve his or her business. So there's a lot of uh, unlocking of the upside when it comes to affiliations, but it's another tool in the toolbox. And when you're thinking about how you fund acquisitions and how you fund the business overall, you probably wanna have some type of a blended strategy. And by blended, I mean, yes, using bank funds to the greatest of your ability to acquire practices outright. But to have a different tool in the toolbox and use uh, some amount of bank funds and some amount of an equity role from a practice uh, that, that you're acquiring, the seller's context, uh, can, can have a lot of merit. And then being able to use an affiliation strategy where appropriate so that you could bring um, affiliates into uh, your overall practice uh, network and, and be able to do that from a strictly a, a equity appreciation standpoint and using no debt. So the blended approach really makes your borrowed dollar go further. And I think that's one of the reasons that 
that you want to learn to have multiple tools in the toolbox, it unlocks a lot of different uh, other aspects of the marketplace beyond those that are just looking to sell and exit. And I think that's critically important, depending especially upon the pace of your overall growth strategy. So I, I hope that that gives you some context around um, you know, how to source acquisitions, how to value them and the importance of EBITDA and EBITDA multiples, and then additional ways to think about the funding and how you use bank funding specifically. So let's, uh, let's hope that I gave you something a little bit different to, to think about uh, on today's show. And if you do have any questions about that, feel free to drop me a, a line directly. You can always email me at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So before we wrap things up on today's show, I did want to take a, a quick minute um, and uh, refresh our, uh, our masterclass that's coming up on January 13th and 14th here in Charlotte. Uh, in the show notes or in the email that goes out uh, about today's episode, um, there'll probably be a link for registration on that and to download further details. But we have gotten uh, some tremendous response um, from our, our initial test classes on this when we sort of tested the subject matter and you know presentations and the content and all the deliverables and takeaways that we gave people um, and everything. But uh, the, the response we got from that those two initial groups was absolutely uh, phenomenal. Um, and, and DeWalker and I are really excited about this because like I, I mentioned in today's episode and in our previous episodes, the vast majority of the people are growing their business through acquisitions, but they're doing it from a one-trick pony standpoint. They're looking to borrow all the funds from the bank. They're looking to make an acquisition 100%. Um, and then the seller transitions out usually. And that's not always the best strategy. And certainly um, you need to have more than one strategy and one tool in your toolbox to, uh, to accomplish your growth strategy. So thinking through how you are the director of business development for your business in terms of building a pipeline, sourcing acquisitions, um, building a pitch, building a target acquisition profile, those are all mission critical on the front end. And then understanding once you get some, some prospect nodding their head that they may be willing to sell their business to you or sell a component of the business to you, understanding who that prospect is and what's the right tool in the toolbox. Is the right tool to acquire their business outright 100% or do you want to allow them to roll equity into your business? And what does that mean from a cap table management having a minority partner now in, in your business, what might it mean to undertake an affiliation strategy where you don't have to borrow any money, uh, take on any more debt to uh, affiliate with that practice and then unlock some value for both yourself and the affiliate, create a lot of upside for both parties. And then the last piece is the, an outright merger. If you built a business of some size and scale and you want to merge a specialty group into yours or merge another general dentistry group that might be in another geography? How do you go about doing that? And what all is involved with it from a, a funding standpoint, from a cap table management standpoint, from a legal standpoint, and all the, the legal aspects that you have to get right in all of those endeavors? We cover all of that in the masterclass together. 
And we also devote some time at the end of the class to building the strategy that you're going to deploy in 2022 and making it come to life. So if you're interested in doing all that, and if you're growing through acquisitions uh, and you're, you're still in that planning phase for 2022 in terms of what all that looks like, and you really want to up your game and frankly, use all the tools and, and, and opportunities that a, a business development person would at an enterprise level DSO, I'd encourage you to, to take a look at our masterclass on January 13th and 14th. We may do another one on mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations in February as well, but we definitely have the January dates. And we're taking enrollment right now. So feel free to click on any of the links in the show notes um, or email me directly um, as it relates to any of that subject matter and be happy to explain to you a little bit more around it. On the something new, noteworthy, and cool front, I have been watching a, uh, a five-part series on PBS. I know all of you love to binge Netflix and, and all this other kind of stuff. I'm not into too many of those shows. I do love Ted Lasso, but um, there are a lot of others that haven't really caught my eye. But for some reason, um, PBS has <laughs> appeared in my, my YouTube uh, uh, feed lately. And they've got this five-part series from their, their Nova um, series, which is called The Universe Revealed. Um, and it's all about the Big Bang Theory and black holes and planet formations and stars and gravity and all this other kind of cool stuff um, that I don't know why I stumbled across it. And I don't know really how it ended up in my news feed or in my uh, show feed uh, on, on YouTube TV. But it did, and I'm so glad that it did. It has been a super cool series. These things are probably a little bit over an hour in length, I think. And there are five of them. Um, and, and they have been absolutely fascinating. I'd love to tell you it's just because we named our company Polaris, which is obviously the North Star and everything. So it has some celestial aspects to it, if you will. But I've just been fascinated by um, uh, by that show, and they they talk with a lot of different astronomers and astrologists. They um, show a lot of uh, really cool video and pictures and things from the Hubble telescope, amongst many other telescopes, and just really are able to trace a lot of stuff back to the beginning of of the universe. And it's it's really really fascinating. That's a world that I don't understand. Um, but I'm truly fascinated by. So if you're looking for something a little bit different, um, you can uh, probably go on pbs.com or pbs.org or whatever the, the um, public broadcasting system website is and just type in NOVA, N-O-V-A. Um, and uh, the, the series is a five-part series and it's called Universe Revealed. Um, like I say, I found it to be super cool and hopefully it'll be on one of your local uh, PBS channels that you can um, uh, watch or DVR or, or uh, you know record in YouTube TV and stuff. Hopefully you'll find it as fascinating as I have. But like I say, I highly recommend it and I've gotten a, a whole lot out of it. Just like I hope you've gotten a lot out of today's episode. If you do, I hope you'll leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you've got questions, feel free to submit them to me directly. You can always reach me at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.